You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Adam Bleakney has served as the head coach of the University of Illinois wheelchair track and road racing team since 2005. During that time frame, his athletes have won 55 medals across four Paralympic Games, while setting 14 world records at the track and winning a number of major marathons. In 2017, Adam also established the Human Performance and Mobility Maker Lab, a lab where students with and without disabilities collaborate to design and develop assistive technology. And just last week, he was recognized by Dare to Try for his contributions to adaptive sports and the Paralympic movement. Let's chat with him. So Adam, I thought we would just start by talking a little bit about your sports background and, you know, how you, how sports played a role in your, has played a role in your life personally. Uh-huh. Okay, sure, sure. Um well, I've been I've been involved in, in Paralympic sports since 1996, um, and uh, wheelchair originally wheelchair marathoning was 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 the the draw for me, um, and then um, once once I once I transferred out to University of Illinois in Champaign, um, I started doing a little bit more track, and so um, so I've been been involved in the sport. Uh, since then, so uh, so a good a good number of years, both as an athlete and then and then uh, as a coach. Um, uh, later on, um, since 2005, I took over as as a head coach at uh, at the University of Illinois and have been there or here since. Um, so I I was a later later onset of uh, a spinal cord injury at the age of 19, and uh, so it was between my freshman and sophomore year of, of college uh, up to that point I'd uh, um, always been uh, involved in, in sport I think as as long as I can uh, remember um, and uh, and up to the point of my spinal cord injury I, I was was still competing uh, um, in, in college as a wrestler uh, part of that I played baseball too in high school um, but baseball and wrestling were kind of my my passions um, and then um, I said that uh, split off just into wrestling and, and college, and then um, a spinal cord injury, and then it became wheelchair racing after that. So um, it, it was uh, sport really offered um, uh, me, and certainly initially after my my spinal cord injury, sport was offered me a, a, a anchor points that that I could uh, things that I, I understood training, and and those were those were um, familiar feelings and, and, and opportunities. And, and so to be able to, to jump back into training and, and competing really was, was uh, um, really valuable for, for a 19 year old with spinal cord injury. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what drew you specifically to the marathon and the long distance mm-hmm. side of that first? Yeah. Um, the, um, the draw really was, was the training element and just, I, I really enjoyed being outside and, and uh, I grew up, in north central Iowa, um, and was 
back uh, after I had a spinal cord injury, I, I moved back in with my parents and enrolled at a local community college. So I was spending um, a lot of my time out on on the county block tops of of, of uh, Cerro Gordo County, um, and so that uh, just that the idea of of being out and training and and uh, um, that was that was that was really the that was really the draw. Um, and I was I I would train in my everyday chair um, before I even had a race chair. I had to wait for obviously those don't necessarily get knocked out of production that quick. So I had to wait for some time. So I I really just even enjoyed being out and, and pushing miles and 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 everyday chair that didn't fit me at all and and uh, was was rather clunky. So <laughs> and, and you know when I think of of wheelchair track and road racing, I think of the University of Illinois. So what was the landscape like before, you know, you know, while you were an athlete? Sure. Sure. I had, um, I, I competed and trained on my own for about a year and a half or two years, uh, more like two years and, um, was finishing my, uh, associate's degree and looking at four-year colleges to finish out my my uh, my bachelor's degree. At the time, early on, I had no no familiarity at all with with the University of Illinois or really any any wheelchair sport, uh, sports programs opportunities at the collegiate level. And um, uh, and my dad had somehow uh, passed a. Uh, 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 passed on an article that he read about um, the program here at the University of Illinois, and and so um, I said, well, that that seems like a, a good opportunity, and and so um, I came out to Champaign with uh, with who my my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time, and and visited campus and, and the program, and got to meet coaches and and some of the athletes, and um, and uh, you know said to myself, well. If, if I can, if I can uh, get admitted, this is this is the place that, that I want to want to want to be, and and so, um, so thankfully I, I was admitted, although it was kind of an eleventh hour. It was early August, and I still hadn't heard back. So I, I think I'd planned on going to the University of Iowa and had looked at housing, and and uh, and then got the the response from from admissions, and and had to make some some last second changes and, and, uh, but, um, but made my way out to Champaign and, 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 um, um, and at the time, um, the program, uh, was, um, I, you know, I'd say the, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, there were some athletes that were, were hall of famers, people like Gene Driscoll and Scott Hollenbeck and, and, and others who, Really had to find the the eighties and nineties for um, not only the University of Illinois but but uh, across across the country and and globally in terms of their performances and and so um, so some of those athletes had had transitioned on and and uh, some were still still on campus. I was fortunate that I was able to train with Jean for um, basically every day for for three years until she retired. So that was that was a great experience and and. Uh, um, and uh, uh, I've learned a lot from her and 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 others too. And so, um, um, so that that really was that was transformative and informative for me and in, in my development as as uh, as a wheelchair track athlete, marathoning athlete. 
and I know a lot of folks know you now, you know, obviously, primarily as as, a, as in your coaching role. So, mm-hmm. so for those that may not be familiar, how was uh, how was Adam as an athlete? Um, I did I did okay. I did okay. I I competed uh, um, at a few Paralympic games. I, I won a silver in in Athens um, mm-hmm. in the eight hundred, and um, I won a few a few road races, but. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, um, it was fine. It was okay. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I enjoyed, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed competing and, and, uh, and training. So that was, um, as I said, that was, that was a, a really impactful and transformative experience for me. Certainly, um, having um you know you, we, as a later onset of spinal cord injury you start a little bit later than those who have uh, grown up with the sport and so you're a little behind behind the behind the curve um in terms of of some of that skill development but i was i was in the right place um here in champagne to to leverage whatever whatever i could to catch up and and uh, and train and and just surrounded by the, the some of the, the the best in the world so i was really really fortunate because of that and what what is the transformation like from um, an athlete to um wearing a, a coach's hat and a coach's role I, I know that um for some it's an easy transition but for others you know uh, they might be great athletes but maybe not uh that doesn't translate into coaching so what is what is that transformation like yeah, um, that, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one, one of the um, one of the changes is is um, is a, a transition from being very self focused um, and in some ways um, selfish and not not in a malicious way, but I, mm-hmm. I think in order to be a high performing athlete, you have to be a little more self centered and focused on on your development. But but as a coach, then that that focus um, gets positioned outwards, and so. Um, I think it's it's a much more rewarding, fulfilling role. Um, is is to um, certainly the idea of, of of winning medals for yourself. There's there's value, and and that's a noble effort. But I think even more noble is is the idea of of helping other people win medals. And so that that's that's a that's a change in in uh, focus and and a change in um, uh, in in intention. And and I think too there's um, uh, you know that the the idea of of helping others reach their their goals can can be um, uh, as compared to when you're an athlete you you really are, are you're much more in control of whether you do or do not reach those goals both in your preparation and your training but also how you compete on on the day of of, uh, of of competition with an athlete as a coach there's a lot of those variables you can't control you can't control. Um, Ultimately, if if they're doing what you prescribe them to do, or how they compete on the day of competition, so um, you can only do as uh, 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 what you're able to to an extent, and then from from that point, really, it, you know, it's, it's it's their it's their experience and their intention and 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 what they uh, decide to do and and how they perform. So um, so that also is a little bit different. So a little less, there's just more out of your control as a, as a coach in terms of, 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 uh, reaching goals as compared to when, when you're an athlete. Um, so, um, I wouldn't say either. I mean, those aren't difficult things to transition into. I think those are, um, just, just some, some differences, but, um, so, um, 
I think the um, what I've always tried to do is is take the the lessons that I learned as an athlete, approaches that I thought were useful for me, um, and and apply those to to how I how I coach and and in uh, in really in many cases or in all cases I, I coach athletes the way that I prefer to be coached, which um, was much more hands off um, directing and and creating opportunities, but but not not forcing or or uh, um demanding that that uh um they do x y and z rather rather creating an environment in which uh, lends itself towards success but ultimately allowing the athlete to choose whether um they they wanted to take advantage of of those those opportunities uh, and to what extent they wanted to to take advantage of those opportunities um and and uh so really a, a creating a more I think uh, entrepreneurial and, and autonomous athlete, which I personally believe that's from a coaching standpoint, if, if the ultimate goal is, is to help um, athletes evolve into better human beings, I, I think that's the, 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 uh, the more impactful approach is to allow um, them to navigate. You just guide and direct, but, but allow them to navigate. Sometimes that means that uh, mistakes are made, but, but uh, oftentimes those mistakes are, are the uh, uh, the the most effective lessons to create the changes that you, you hope to to seek and and ultimately really substantial um, uh, tangible growth in, in in those those individuals. I think that's always more beneficial than them um, being told exactly what to do and why they need to do it. There's just oftentimes that's half of the learning experience, but for them to go through that and and make some decisions and have to um, rely on, on, on themselves and what skills they've developed. And and uh, um, uh, and sometimes then the decision isn't necessarily the right one, but but then there's also a, a, a I think, a more deep and lasting lesson that they learn. I think ultimately, and I'm, I'm kind of wandering around a little bit, ultimately, I, th- I think that that achieves the goal of, of, of seeing these uh, student athletes evolve into responsible, and uh, uh, empathic human beings that, that uh, move out and, and become uh, mentors and coaches and 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 uh, stewards in their own right. Yeah, it's a very good point. And and I know that there are so many components to elite performance. Obviously, technique and and preparation and nutrition and psychology. Of those elements and probably others as well that I didn't mention, as a coach, what, how do you balance all of those different elements and uh, with the athletes that you work with? There, there's a lot that that um, to to manage um, with when you're considering elite level performance, and 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 it really is the case, and and this is um, something that I talk about often, most often with my younger athletes who. Um, don't necessarily understand the the lifestyle, um, and that is that is it's a um, it's not a one hour, two hour, two hour a day, three hour a day, whatever our practice time lasts um, uh, effort. Rather, it's it's a it's a comprehensive um, effort that that uh, um, impacts all areas of their life, and and it's so it's it really is a seven day. Um, uh, span of, of attention so it's nutrition recovery uh, training elements um, 
I mean, a lot, a lot of those pieces that ultimately those, those are those those are the ones that then amalgamate into um, elite level elite level performance. And so, um, I've, I've just been really fortunate to be around uh, individuals that are much smarter in a lot of these areas than I am. Um, think of of anything. If I have an attribute, is that I I I, um, I listen <laughs> and. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always, always interested in learning more. Um, and and um, that's uh, um, I'm never complacent with with the knowledge that that I have or we have. I think there's always opportunity for growth. Um, and and uh, and so I've been fortunate to be around nutritionists, strength and conditioning, and and biomechanists, and 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 so on. Um, that I can pull from and, 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 and advantage their, their, uh, um, understanding and skills to, to, um, assist with, with our athletes and their performance. Yeah. And that learning element is so important because of just the rapid changes in, in, in everything from obviously the technology with the adaptive sports equipment to, you know, obviously new things that we learn with nutrition and, and human body uh, performance. So um, I, how has, um, since you've got into coaching, how has that space changed? Um, insofar as, as technology and equipment mm-hmm. or yeah. um, sure, sure. I, I, the, there has been, um, one one area has been the the change in in the, the gloves that the athletes use uh, for propulsion. So when when I got into the sport in the mid nineties, um, nearly all athletes used a, um, a a soft mitt glove made of leather and, and rubber. Um, came in four different sizes: small, medium, large, and X large. Um, it's called harness harness gloves. Um, actually, was developed uh, here in Champaign. Um, collaboration between uh, Marty Morris, who was the longtime coach. He was my coach when I was here as a as an athlete. Um, uh, great researcher, um, sports scientist, uh, coach, um, innovator. Um, he collaborated with with a local seamstress, Deb Harness, who had worked for Nike and had done some work with um, my understanding. She'd done a little work with Greg Blanchett, and she lived out on the West Coast. Uh, so I had a background uh, in adaptive sport. They collaborated to develop this glove, harness glove. Um, and so um, that really was ubiquitous and used uh, across the sport for uh, through the 90s. and the early 2000s, we began to make a little bit of a change and started using a, a thermoplastic material that that allowed us to create custom custom gloves for the athletes. So rather than a size glove, each athlete could have one that was individual to their hand hand uh, dimensions, and uh, and their pushing style too. The way that you created the interface between the glove and the hand ring can be custom to each athlete. Um, that was that really was was a leap forward in terms of of a more effective force transfer between the the athlete and and the racing chair. Um, but with with issues. So the one challenge is that each of those gloves was a was a one off. It was kind of a work of art. <laughs> so you can never get your you never get symmetry between your right hand and your left hand. So the, one, the left hand would always be a little different than the right. Um, which is fine. You can work around that. But then if you had, I had athletes that had gloves for the same gloves for six seven years and they break over time. So there's only so many times you can fix it. Um, or I've had, I had athletes who left gloves in, on the airplane or in their car and the sun melted them. So, so anyway, so there's some issues. So 
in the in the early 2000s we moved into 3d printing gloves um and and it was um really a i think a real breakthrough just in terms of of uh, usable accessible innovation um much cheaper to, to build um from a standpoint of performance you could you could uh Take an athlete's glove, um, scan it, and then replicate it as many times as, as you wanted to. So if an athlete lost their gloves, well, you could just print another pair of gloves. Or you could have a pair of you could have a pair of gloves for the rain, for sunshine, for whatever conditions. Mm-hmm. If you knew that they were going to be a replica of, of the preferred glove, um, they were also they're also um, half the weight of, of a thermoplastic glove. Um, and so those really have big you know, for the most part, those are the gloves used today. So really a transition from um, a softer style mid into a more customized and now a more uh, lightweight glove. Um, so that's been that's been interesting to to watch and, and to see that change and see the, the technology adoption. Um, the chairs, too, more recently have changed. Um, They've they really had, had um, stabilized and plateaued really by the mid '90s into a, a T-frame design. Obviously, there were some subtle changes in terms of of some of the materials used um, and and um, and the way the athletes were positioned in the frames. Um, more recently, in the last few years, there's been a, a real significant change um, into for a very few small percentage of athletes into um, advanced materials and, and fabrication um, using a full carbon fiber, uh, single monocot frame. Um, mm-hmm. uh, some athletes have, and then there's even varying levels of, of, of technology in those frames with um, uh, some athletes having access to um really a singular chair that that no other athletes can have access to. So I think that's a real point of concern and and uh, one that's that we need to address is is access to technology and and the cost of uh, is very prohibitive um, as it is uh, to to the entry level cost of participation in our sport is is high enough as it is about four thousand dollars for a racing chair. Um, some of these new chairs on on the market are are over twenty thousand dollars and, and mm-hmm. uh, can be significantly more. And so, just from a standpoint of of access and equality and, and equity, I think that's that's an issue that that uh, that we're, we're we need to address. And and so, um, one that we're working through. But um, uh, anyways, I've I digressed again off your your original question a little bit. <laughs> and that's a, and that's a great point, Adam. And I know that we talked often about adaptive sports and some adaptive sports require, you know, more specialized equipment. Uh, and so, yeah, whether, whether it's wheelchair racing, uh, you know, road racing, wheelchair track, um, that's a, it is an expensive sport to, to, to be in. And so, um, not every individual with a physical disability has access or the means to be able to, to, uh, to you know at least get their own you know own custom fit piece of equipment so right, definitely right. a big obstacle and, right. and barrier to entry and um i want to, since we since we talked a little bit about the the changes in kind of that technology and and some of the some of that space i'd love to learn a little bit more about your role with the the human performance lab and and mm-hmm. and how that all started and what you what what you've seen um as a result of being able to have um, that that facility and that type of a program. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wear a few different hats. Primarily, I, I is is my role as as a head coach, but I, I'm I'm also 
affiliated with with different um, colleges on campus in, in research and innovation and and um, some of which does intersect directly with sport other is, is other other projects are um, related to um, ac general activities of, of daily living so not sport specific um, and as as an outgrowth of some of those projects we we established a, a, a mobility a, a maker lab um, adjacent to our, our indoor training space and, and we're uh, we are the the USOPC National Training Site for Wheelchair Track, um, and have been since 2014. So that opened up some doors and some opportunities. One of which um, uh, was the opportunity to um, connect in this this uh, Maker Lab space into the 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 the, the, the training facility. Um, and I just the the aim of of that space is is to bring. Uh, students and faculty from different disciplines, backgrounds across campus, whether it's engineering or, or design or uh, um, uh, the medical school, bringing them into a single space uh, to work and develop and innovate and, and on different projects. Um, one, of our, one of our cornerstone project for that space is developing a hands-free um, self-balancing ball chair. And it's, it's a project that I've been working on for about five years um, or started about five years ago. And uh, um, pulled together a team of, of mechanical engineers, roboticists, um, and uh, industrial designers, all into on a team to try to take um, the the standard living experience for somebody who uses a manual wheelchair and 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 find ways to um, create more convenience and and. Uh, um, um, yeah, and just frankly, to to find opportunities to access experiences that are either inconvenient or were completely marginalized from. And so, um, I guess the the one of the big differences is that, um, and we have we have a, a working prototype now that we do uh, a lot of research with. We're building a second prototype to do a little more, uh, take it out and do some more demos. Um, but it's a hands-free movement. You sit up, basically you're 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 balanced on top of a bowling ball. Um, is what it is. We take bowling ball, we coat it with a special material, and then we have a, basically a seat uh, um, that we sit upon. And using motors and, and omni wheels, um, we're able to drive around on a on a ball. And uh, it's really amazing. First time when, <laughs> when we first started building was in the first time I sat in it. Uh, just you, know, you look down, and there aren't any wheel. I mean, you can only see the ground, uh, but you're balancing on a wheel. Or I'm sorry, you're bouncing on a ball. Um, and uh, but what that allows you to do is like I can, you know, I you can't see I can carry two things and I can drive around. Um, I can hold my wife's hand. We've done or we've we've walked back and forth across spaces where I'm holding my wife's hand. Again, um, can you do that in a manual chair or a power chair? Yeah, you can, but it's a, it's not that convenient. Like usually I run over my wife's toes and then she gets mad and ruins the moment, you know, things like that. But with, with, with this device, it's really organic and natural. Um, very, very akin to walking, walking hand in hand. Um, so um, what it also allows you to do is um, move in a lot of different directions. So any wheel device, I, I say you can kind of move in lines, right? You can you can move in circles, sort of, but you're always kind of moving this way with lines. With with a ball chair, I can move any direction. So I can do figure eights. Um, mm. One of the really neat movements that I hadn't done since I had a spinal cord injury was was move laterally, so slide left and right. 
mm-hmm. um, which you can do. So if I'm if I'm down in my workshop with with this ball chair, this guy can slide up. I can go up to the table and then I can just slide left and right and and work up and down up and down the table. So it's really it's a it's just a it's a really cool movement that um, said that I hadn't I hadn't experienced for almost thirty years. The first time I sat on this this uh, device. So. Um, we're, we're still working on it. My my goal and aim is is to uh, commercialize it and translate it to the market uh, in a at a price point that's reasonable and competitive with with uh, with other power devices and and extend uh, um, that opportunity to uh, uh, anyone who wants to to jump in this this device. So. Um, so that's one of our projects that, that we, we we work on in in this in uh, in this maker lab space. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And uh, obviously, new uh, developments like this take a lot of time. But do you have like yeah. a a projection of when you'd like to see it? Uh, maybe perhaps on the market. I think we're likely within the next. I would say four to five years, realistically, in terms of of some of the. Um, you know, there's just still some elements that we need to to develop, but then also, um, uh, you know, just in terms of commercialization, commercialization process, there's a lot of uh, I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed, <laughs> which sometimes to me seem um, almost nonsensical, but um, but there's not much I can do about that. Yeah. So a little bit, I'd like it to be next month, frankly. <laughs> I call the engineers, I'm like, let's get this done. That's right. <laughs> So, it's always tomorrow i want it tomorrow yeah, right i want it tomorrow exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. one of the one of the things i want to talk about is just also the change in the landscape of the collegiate space i know probably mm-hmm. when you were an athlete there were fewer options and what's nice in terms of accessibility and and availability and geography and all of the above we've seen a kind of a good growth in collegiate adaptive sports. Um, what is your take on on where we are now and hopefully where we will be in that space in the future as well? Sure. Yeah, we, it, it is exciting to see the growth and and, and the interest and um, uh, new programs that are being established um, in, in some cases in existing um, uh, adaptive sports programs, but not necessarily full wheelchair track. Um, mm-hmm. But some new programs. University of Michigan has established a program in the last the last few years. Um, all is incredibly exciting and, and needed. Um, um, it just uh, it's it's. Uh, I think it also demonstrates how much much more work there is that needs to be done. And and uh, um, and, and we're not we're not we're not meeting the need. We're not we're not fulfilling the need for. Um, student athletes that are interested in competing and in, in, uh, certainly in, in, in uh, wheelchair track and in, uh, in a college environment. Um, I, and I think really there's almost a bottleneck of, 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 of individuals who are eligible and, and would benefit from that opportunity, but just uh, uh, don't have the resources uh, um, to move out of state. Certainly University of Illinois is, is uh, the cost is prohibitive as an out-of-state student, and and um, although we have scholarships that are available, there's there's a finite amount of of uh, money available that can be can be distributed. So um, there's just a real need and a significant significant opportunity and to 
to continue to develop the number of programs and and uh, allocate resources and and, and seed these programs um, across the country. Um, so my my goal, I would love to see within the next, uh, and this is ambitious, but I think within the next six to eight years to see another 10, 12 programs that have some opportunity. I think that's incredibly ambitious and probably not realistic. Um, but I think it would match the need. Um, I, I think as more and more states mandate inclusion for their um, students to have physical disability, oftentimes that the the um, I guess the 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 fit that often is is um, the most successful for for high schools is is for athletes to participate on their high school track field team. Field team. They don't need to find a, a team for wheelchair basketball. Right, it's, you can have one athlete that then can integrate in with their able bodied team. So I think um, we have greater participation and greater numbers, and and so. And there's, as I said, there's a real bottleneck of what's the next step. Where do you go from high school? Obviously, the next logical step is into a collegiate training environment. Um, but when there's less than a half a dozen opportunities across the country, um, I think it's pretty clear that meets not not being met. Um, and so, yeah. um, and so, but I guess on back on the positive, has it changed? Yeah. Um, I think when I uh, was in school in 97, uh, Arizona had just started a program. Um, but um, at that point, I think it was just the two of us in terms of, of collegiate wheelchair track. And so um, that's growing into, as I said, I think maybe half a dozen that, where their opportunities exist. But um, but it needs to happen. It needs to happen. And, and uh, whether or not the NCAA um, supports um, um, and integrates our athletes into their model, um, irrespective of that, it needs it needs to happen. I, I think um, I'm hopeful we, we just ran an NCAA collegiate um, championship at Drake Relays uh, this last last spring. We had participant. We had representation from Arizona, Illinois and Michigan, which was great. Um, Hopefully that's just not a one-off and rather that is a, a small step towards the next bigger step and steps to follow. Um, I'm not confident <laughs> that it is. Unfortunately, that's the pessimist in me and having been through these conversations almost ad nauseum, but, um, but my whole, I, I'll always maintain some degree of hope that there's uh, opportunities and philosophical buy-in and resource allocation that would allow and provide opportunities for for a student athlete um, who shouldn't be excluded from the NCAA just simply because they have a physical disability. Obviously, it goes without saying. Um, I always, it, it, you know, I always, I, uh, what was always interesting to me, even as an undergraduate, um, so I started out under the NCAA umbrella as, as a collegiate wrestler and then finished my time outside of the NCAA as a wheelchair track athlete. And I never, at that, you know, at that time I was a little younger. I never understood um, why that was, why there wasn't integration into the NCAA model. I, my prep, I, I trained harder as a wheelchair track athlete um, than, and I trained hard as a collegiate wrestler, but I trained harder as a wheelchair track athlete. Um, so just in terms of the intent and effort and, and, and all the values that the NCAA promotes and as, as being a, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, part and parcel to what they stand for. I, I, I felt like we as wheelchair track athletes and basketball athletes um, were, were embodying those. So um, 
And I still can't explain that, to be quite honest with you. But, but um, so hopefully, hopefully we have a, a willing participant. And and but either way, it, it's it's a it's it's a real need, and and it's, it's something that needs to happen to to uh, extend those opportunities um, for uh, student athletes in the collegiate level. Well, yeah, and and there are two things that will happen: societal pressure, but also the fact that, as you said, the funnel, the funnel is in, growing at the top end. There are more and more younger athletes competing because there are more and more opportunities across the country, through, right. you know, various sanctioned competitions and other other sporting events. So, um, so something, you know, I, I'm an optimist in that sense that I think something will happen at some point in time, either because of uh, just demand or societal pressures. Uh, Adam, the last thing question I have for you is just in terms of like, if people want to learn about obviously the program that you operate, um, yeah. is there a website or is there social media uh, platforms or handles that they should uh, follow? Um, well, I think we, Illinois Wheelchair Athletics has, um, social media. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, you, you can just email me. I'm, I'm not a big social media guy. So, um, there probably is stuff out there that I'm not aware of on the program, but I'm not, I, I don't spend much, much time. Um, but I'm, I'm always, I'm always willing to share information, um, and, and extend whatever opportunities that, that I can. So, um, yeah, so usually, uh, I mean, if, if uh, anybody emails me, then we can, we can start the conversation. Just my last name at Illinois.edu is uh, it's a good way to connect with me. Awesome. 